So if we get ready for this Christmas season, I think it's uh, kind of a good idea to focus on the surpassing benefits of knowing Christ. And our text today comes from Philippians 3, 7 through 11. And if we can turn to our Bibles, I want to read that portion of Scripture. And I want to start with verse 4 to put it in context. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is Paul talking in a letter he wrote to the Philippians while he was in prison in Rome. So Paul saying, he was circumcised on the eighth day, in verse 5, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What we have here is the autobiographical passage that introduces the most dramatic and compelling salvation testimony in the New Testament. And that is, of course, of the Apostle Paul is also one of the most significant statements of the doctrine of salvation in Scripture, revealing the internal work of God in a truly repentant and believing sinner. The Apostle Paul relates what was going on in his mind when he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And we should turn to Acts 9, verse 1 through 9, to look at that historical record that Luke recorded for us of Paul's dramatic conversion. Acts 9, verse 1. Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, which was Paul's previous name before he became a Christian, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, and that's what the Christian movement was called then, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight 
and neither ate or drank. Since Luke's account of this amazing incident does not reveal the transformation of Paul's thinking, here in Philippians 3, 4 through 11, the apostle himself provides those details of the Spirit's work in his heart. Salvation is a sovereign act of God in which God invades the sinner's darkness with the glorious light of his truth and redeems them. Paul describes the miracle from the inside that transformed him from the arch-persecutor of the Christians into their most beloved leader. That day on Damascus Road, the living Christ broke through the spiritual blindness of the proud, the self-righteous Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus. As a result of his trust in his religious accomplishments was shattered, and the root of his self-confidence was forever uprooted as conviction and truth flooded his darkened soul. In this passage, Paul seeks, speaks of salvation as a transaction or an exchange. He even uses business and accounting terminologies in verses 7 and 8, which form the heart of this passage. He uses the word gain to describe what is in the profit column. He describes loss, of course, which is in the loss column. And he's counting and reckoning all his gains and losses. Paul spent his life accumulating what he imagined was personally earned righteousness that would achieve salvation, which we just read about in verses 4 through 6 in Philippians. When he met Christ, the apostle realized that all those things were actually in the lost column. He exchanged them for all the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That exchange is the theme of this passage. Jesus describes salvation as an exchange or a transaction. In fact, an exchange for all that I am, for all that he is. In Matthew 16, 25 through 26, you ought to turn there. Matthew 16, 25 through 26. It should be highlighted in your Bibles if you haven't highlighted it already. Matthew 16, 25 through 26. Verse 25 in chapter 16. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now Jesus was talking about an exchange. He was talking about losing something to gain something. What he said was that in order for you to gain, you would have to lose your life. If you want to gain your soul, it will cost you your life. If you desire to save your life, it will cost you your, your soul. In other words, if you hold on to the things that to you are precious and reject the things of God, to God are, that are precious, it will cost you your eternal soul. That's the exchange. And Jesus said, what good is it if you have gained everything that the world has to offer and lost your eternal soul? You would be much better off to make the exchange of what you have in this life for what God offers you in the life to come. Whatever exchange you need to make to gain your eternal soul, you ought to do that. That's a very significant scriptural principle. There is an exchange in salvation. 
That's an exchange for all that I am for all that Christ is. There is an exchange for all my religious activities, ceremonies, righteous works for the person of Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which I may have spent all my life in religious achievement, but I have, I have to lose it in order to gain Christ. Whatever it is that I have spent my life accumulating, even if I gain the world, it would mean nothing if I lost Christ. So I'll exchange it all for him. That's what Jesus is saying. The wise person looks at everything in life, measures it against the value of the loss of his eternal soul, and says, is it worth it? And, and, I will, and says, it isn't worth it, and I will give this up to gain my eternal soul. You see, the person who comes to God is the person who is willing to pay whatever God requires. Whatever the price, whatever the cost, the person willingly to abandon everything for Christ. You see, the, this takes us right back to Matthew 13. The man who found the treasure and sold everything to buy it. The man who found the great pearl and sold everything he had to buy it. And the treasure is salvation and the pearl is salvation. We can find those in Matthew 13, verse 44. Jesus told two parables to illustrate the exchange involved in salvation. Verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who is on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had bought and had bought it. Both parables picture people who have accumulated earthly wealth, but they find in the kingdom of heaven, the sphere of salvation where God rules a treasure far more valuable. They then gladly sell all they have to get that treasure. So must sinners abandon everything for Christ. So let's take a closer look at the passage here in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. The surpassing benefit of knowing Christ. In verse 7, the statement, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, sums up the dramatic change that took place in Paul's perspective when he met Christ. All of his cherished treasures in his gain column suddenly became deficits. But by God's marvelous grace... Those things that were wrongly imagined would give him eternal life were replaced by five matchless benefits that are, were in Christ. Knowledge, righteousness, power, fellowship, and glory. Let's look at the first one, knowledge. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The forcible beginning indeed is an untranslatable string of five Greek particles that if you read it literally would read, but indeed therefore at least even. So different Bibles will have a different word there to try and figure out the best way to describe that. And in the ESV that we use here, it's indeed. 
it strongly emphasizes the contrast between the religious credits that do not impress God and the incalculable benefits of knowing Christ. In verse 7, Paul counted the religious credits in verses 5 and 6 as loss. Here he expands that conviction and declares all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. The verb translated, I have counted, in verse 7 is in the perfect tense. And the same verb translated here, I count, is in the present tense. That indicates that all the meritorious works that Paul had counted on to earn God's favor and any that he might do in the present or the future are but loss. Paul abandoned his past religious achievements in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And the surpassing value refers to something of incomparable worth. The word knowing in the Greek is not a verb, but a form of the noun gnosis, the Greek word gnosis, which means to know experimentally or experientially by personal involvement. The surpassing knowledge of Christ that Paul describes here is far more than intellectual knowledge of the facts about him. We can know everything there is to know about Jesus, when he lived, when he died, who wrote about him, etc. Not, that's not the kind of knowledge we're talking about here. The New Testament frequently describes Christians that, who, who know Christ. In John ten fourteen, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my own, and my own know me. In John 17, 3, he defined eternal life as knowing him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. While in Ephesians 1, 17, Paul prayed that the God of Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In the first epistle, John declared, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life, 1 John 5.20. Salvation involves personal, relational knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Greek, gnosis would describe a secret, cultic, mystical communion with a deity. Gnosticism had raised its ugly head in the second century. And it was led by Paul the magician, we read about, that Peter rebuked who was trying to buy the power of God. Those who were initiated into the mystery claimed to have ascended beyond the mundane knowledge possessed by the masses. They imagined that they alone enjoyed a personal experience of their deity. The Greeks often sought such elevated state through drunken revelry or drugs. In the second century, the dangerous heresy of Gnosticism attempted to syncretize the Greek concept of Gnosis and the Christian truth. That's still true today in pagan religions. That's what gurus claim. That's what the Buddhist monks claim. That's what the strange cultic and occultic religionists of the world claim 
as they sit and go through strange, bizarre activities that their religions prescribe in order that they might ascend out of the mundane and the divine realm of their perceived gods. That's the church of Scientology, but you have to pay to get to their higher levels. That's the gnosis, the deep, mystical, transcendent knowledge of a god. Like their pagan counterparts, the Gnostics claimed a higher, truer knowledge of God than the average Christian experience. But Paul uses gnosis here to describe the transcendent communion with Christ that all true believers can experience. There's an Old Testament also context for gnosis. The verb form was used in Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to translate the Hebrew word yada. Yada often denoted an intimate knowledge, even a union of bond of love. It's sometimes used in Scripture as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve and they had a son. It also describes God's intimate love bond with Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos 3.2. Thus the word can have the connotation both of a transcendent knowledge and an intimate love bond. Adding personal warmth to the rich theological concept of knowing Christ Jesus, Paul describes him as my Lord. That threefold description encompasses Christ's three offices of prophet, priest, and king. I've often wondered, why do we say Christ Jesus, Lord Christ Jesus, my Lord? Here's the explanation. Christ views him as the Messiah, the messenger or prophet of God. Jesus views him as Savior, emphasizing his role as the believer's great high priest. And Lord views him as the sovereign king over all of creation. For the inestimable, inestimable privilege of knowing Jesus Christ, Paul gladly suffered the loss of all things by which he might have sought to earn salvation apart from Christ. The apostle went so far to count them as rubbish so that he might gain or personally appropriate Christ. All efforts to obtain salvation through human achievement are as much as rubbish as the worst vice. The word rubbish used here is a very, very strong word that could be also rendered waste, dung, manure, or even excrement. Paul expresses in the strongest possible language his utter disdain for all the religious credits with which he had sought to impress man and God. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, they are worthless. Paul would have hardly endorsed Isaiah's declaration in Isaiah 64, 6. We have all became like one who is unclean, and all our unrighteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The phrase, in him, expresses the familiar Pauline truth that believers are in Christ, a concept found more than 25 times in his, I'm sorry, 75 times in his epistles. Believers are inextricably intertwined with Christ in an intimate life and love bond. You could say, God is for us, God is in us, and God is with us. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul wrote to the Galatians. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The next benefit, righteousness. Verse 9, the second half of verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul had spent his adult life futilely trying to obtain a righteousness of his own derived from keeping the law. That righteousness, one of self-effort, external morality, religious ritual, and moral works, all produced by the flesh, had been a crushing, unbearable burden. Although Paul did his best, he fell far short of God's standard, which no one can meet. In Romans three nineteen through 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He was like the rest of his countrymen, who for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not to submit, did not submit to God's righteousness. Romans 10.3. Let's turn to Romans 7, Romans 7, verse 9. Romans 7, verse 9. Paul expands on his awakening in his heart here. In verse 9, I was once alive from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Once, though devoted to the law of Judaism, he was living and thinking apart from the law of God. When he faced the true divine law, he saw himself as a sinner, dead in sin and headed for eternal death. That's the purpose of the law, to point us to the need of a Savior. Because if you really study the law, and Jesus taught us, it's not only in deed, it's in thought. It's almost impo- it is. It's impossible to keep the law. I mean, do we always keep God first in our life? Do we ever take God's name in vain? Do we have lustful thoughts in our hearts? Do we ang- are we angry with somebody or hate them? Jesus told us that's the same as murder. Have we ever lied? Have we ever stolen? Have we ever coveted ever in our life? And you go back and you examine your life and you find out you can't keep the law for yourself. The law points us to that need for a Savior to save us. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The law of Judaism gave him life, he thought. The law of God killed him. It made it stop the mouth. When he saw himself as utterly sinful, he renounced his work as righteousness of his own doing and accepted the free gift of God's righteousness by grace. Paul gladly exchanged the burden of legalistic self-righteousness 
for the righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Faith is the confident, continuous confession of total dependence on the trust in Jesus Christ for the necessary requirements to enter the kingdom. It involves more than intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel. Saving faith includes trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the surrender to his lordship. It is on the basis of faith alone that righteousness comes from God to repentant sinners. Righteousness is the right standing with God and acceptance by him. That repentant sinners have their sin imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to them is the heart of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul declared that God, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become his righteousness of God. Paul gladly shed his threadbare robe of his own righteousness, stretched out his empty hands to receive the glorious royal robe of God's righteousness in Christ. This doctrine is at the core of the gospel. Of the cross, God judged Jesus as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who ever truly believed. When a sinner embraces Jesus as Lord and trusts only in his sacrifice for sin, God treats that sinner as if he lived Christ's sinless life. Hard to comprehend, but that's what the Lord teaches us in his word. The next benefit, power. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul had already mentioned the deep experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ that comes at salvation in verse 8. But still the cry of his heart was that I may know him. Day one, we don't know everything to know about Christ. It happens over time as we grow in the knowledge. That initial saving knowledge of Christ became the basis of Paul's lifelong pursuit of an even deeper knowledge of his Savior. And that's what we're all on, that journey to have more deeper knowledge of our Savior. Specifically, Paul longed to experience the power of his resurrection. He knew there was no power in the law. He also knew there was no power in the flesh to overcome sin or to serve God. Verse Romans seven eighteen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. But because he knew Christ and had his righteousness imputed to him, Paul had been given the Holy Spirit in the same spiritual power that raised Jesus from the dead. His resurrection was the greatest display of Christ's power. Rising from the dead revealed his absolute power over both the physical and spiritual realms. Paul experienced Christ's resurrection power in two ways. First, it was the power that saved him, a truth he affirmed in Romans 6, 4 through 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. In salvation, believers are identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. 
But more than that, the second point, it is Christ's resurrection power that sanctified him and all believers to defeat temptation and trials to lead a holy life and boldly and fruitfully proclaim the gospel. We won't attain the perfection in this life, but the progress is to become more and more holy as we gain that knowledge from Christ. Paul gladly exchanged his impotence for Christ's resurrection power and described it to experience its fullness. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16. The next benefit, fellowship. The second half of verse 10. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. The NASB translates this, and the fellowship of his sufferings become conformed to his death. A fourth benefit brought Paul was fellowship with Jesus Christ or sharing life with Jesus Christ. The apostle speaks specifically here of the fellowship of his sufferings. As he just noted, Paul was conformed to his death at salvation, but he, he has something more in mind here, a deep partnership and communion with Christ in suffering. When he met Christ, Paul gained a companion to be with him in his suffering, one who endured far more intense persecution and suffering than anyone else who ever lived, all of it undeserved. The deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with the living Christ are at times of intense suffering. Suffering drives believers to him, if we're true believers. They find in him a merciful high priest, a faithful friend who feels their pain, and a sympathetic companion who faced all the trials and temptations that we have faced. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that. He is thus likely, unlikely qualified to help them in their weaknesses and infirmities. Hebrews 2.17. That blessed comforting truth led Paul to exclaim in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, I am strong. The fifth benefit, glory. Verse 11, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. A final and consummate benefit Paul obtained when he met Christ was the guarantee of his future resurrection. when he could share Christ's glory. That by any means expresses Paul's humility. Paul's sense of unworthiness never left him. He was humble. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he wrote, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In Ephesians 3, 8, he described himself as the very least of all saints. Paul was confident that he would attain the resurrection from the dead and share Christ's glory. That phrase, the resurrection from the dead, is very unique in Scripture. It literally reads, the out-resurrection from among the corpses. The out-resurrection from among the corpses. That's the rapture. Believers will attain the resurrection at the rapture 
when we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Believers will be taken out from among the rest of the dead corpses who will not be raised until the end of the millennial kingdom and transformed into the image of Christ. Paul hated the weakness of his flesh and longed to be rid of it. Because he saw himself as wretched, he wrote in the, to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of the body at the resurrection is another of the surpassing benefits of knowing Christ. What do believers gain by their union with Christ? The knowledge of Christ in their identification with him, the righteousness of Christ to them in justification, the power of Christ in their sanctification, participation in the suffering of Christ, and sharing Christ's glory in their glorification. No wonder Paul gladly exchanged the religious credits in his lost column for the surpassing benefits of knowing Christ. But Matthew 19 records another story of another man who came to, to the same crossroads as Paul. In reply to his question about how to obtain eternal life, Jesus told him to obey the law. In response, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Matthew nineteen twenty. He too had his spiritual prophet column filled with self-effort, religious ritual, and works righteousness. But unlike Paul, he counted those things as gain and rejected Christ. But Paul counted them loss and gained Christ. Everyone stands at that crossroad. People can cling to their religious credits and follow the rich young ruler onto the broad path that leads to eternal destruction, or they can forsake them in favor of the surpassing benefits of knowing Christ and follow Paul on that narrow path that leads to eternal life. My final appeal for anyone here that has not yet put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ Remember what Jesus told us earlier. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Will you make the exchange for your soul to gain the mercy and grace of Christ? Mercy is not giving what you would deserve. Death. And grace is giving what is not deserved. Grace. Will you make the exchange for your soul to gain the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They're wonderful things to experience with God. Will you make the exchange for your soul for the surpassing benefits of knowing Christ? Knowledge, righteousness, power, fellowship, and glory. Salvation is completely by grace, apart from works. We all know that. What's the corollary to that? Damnation is completely by works apart from grace. 
If God is for you, does it matter who is against you? If God is against you, does it matter who is for you? Let me repeat that. If God is for you, does it matter who is against you? And if God is against you, does it matter who is for you? In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear, who, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Very sobering words. And a famous evangelist, Charles Thomas Studd said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Finish with one more scripture from our Lord. Written by Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 58. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. You told us what we need to know to have the benefits of the surpassing knowledge of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that everyone here accepts that exchange for everything that we do, for everything that you have done for us. And if there's someone they heard that has not put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, if they acknowledge their sinful state and ask for their forgiveness of their sins and ask for the mercy and grace of God, he will answer that prayer if you are truly sincere. I ask that for everyone that's here and hasn't done that yet, and I pray that today might be your day of salvation. For those of us that have already put our faith and trust in Christ, I pray that we all be, remain steadfast in the growing knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name, in Christ alone, we pray. Amen.